Need custom-made images, videos, and more for your next campaign? Discover Shutterstock Studios, offering end-to-end -end creative solutions and content for major brands and agencies. With most productions worldwide on pause, Shutterstock Studios is your secret weapon for getting the content you need. Learn more at Shutterstock.com studios. Welcome to the Pop-Up Biz Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Sandler. Together, we'll discover the latest and greatest in experiential retail, marketing, and pop-ups. That means fashion, retail, restaurants, art, and entertainment. You're going to hear about new business models, creative strategies, and the latest technologies available that make pop-up sales and marketing effective for brands. Alex Cohen is a vice president at Compass Real Estate. Educated at Yale and Princeton and an innovative thinker and leader in New York's commercial real estate community, Alex develops strategy, advises, manages, and analyzes commercial office, retail, and mixed-use acquisition and lease transactions for tenants, landlords, and investors. With a background in urban planning, Alex has over 20 years of commercial real estate transaction negotiation, totaling 10 million square feet. He has extensive experience in launching international brands in the United States and a deep expertise in the marketing and repositioning of mixed-use real estate. His unique perspective allows him to identify markets brand buildings, and plan space configurations with the potential to attract and retain talent and customers vital to the retail and workspace environments of the future. He is a recognized thought leader and a frequent contributor and speaker in national and business media. Welcome, Alex, to the Pop-Up Biz Podcast. Thank you very much, Susan, for having me. This is great. I'm thrilled that you're with us, and I just want to check in with you. How are you doing here at the top of the new year? Well, it's a very interesting period. Um, as you know, Compass is primarily a residential firm, and the residential, particularly higher-end residential, is really booming, even with so much uncertainty, um, interest rates being so low. Uh, it's just unbelievable, the level of activity. In contrast with commercial, where prices, rents are down sharply and owners and landlords are really looking to make deals. Um, and it's a great time, I think, for my clients to be very opportunistic. There is still real hesitancy. Um, and that's uh, something that I'm trying to overcome. And, and part of that hesitancy is kind of an unwillingness to go longer term. And that's a good kind of uh, tie into what we're discussing today. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, that's the opportunity. And also that's what I am uh, uh, working to overcome in terms of hesitancy, um, as I think most people believe, uh, as the vaccine is rolled out, and we hopefully reach a level of herd immunity that um, all this pent up demand and pent-up desire to get together and to do things will lead to a real boom period in retail and in other sectors of the U.S. 
Exactly. And, and we know 2020 was the toughest year on record for brick and mortar retailers. You know, so many bankruptcies and store closings that the big commercial streets and shopping districts feel empty, depleted at least. Malls have high vacancy rates too. But could you fill us in on the actual state of things, just a, an idea of what the percentages look like out there? Well, you're absolutely right. In 2020, I think over 8,700 stores closed, and that was a record. And you know, we were really in a retail apocalypse before COVID, with so many um, American uh, brands, com- what I call commodity retailers, really um, in trouble. And the COVID crisis and the closures and um, the decline in the economy really accelerated this apocalypse. Uh, And the result is that in particularly uh, retail corridors that are focused on tourism in cities like New York or on business, you know, working workers who are other now working from home in San Francisco or New York or in Boston, um, they're really, really struggling with you know, vacancy of 25, 30%, you know, depending on whether it's Soho. Fifth Avenue is unfortunately right now very depressing with the level of closures. Um, so, you know, there's, there's that uh, unfortunate reality, which I believe will not improve significantly until we do emerge out of work from home and tourism, particularly global tourism, which drives so much activity on high streets in the U.S. um, uh, returns. On the positive side, um, I want to speak to a couple of things. Uh, I um, am really amazed at what's developed uh, uh, in the Plaza District on on, uh, 59th Street, which has become like the fashion destination. And you see lines outside of the new... um, Bathing Ape Store and Celine and what will soon be Dior. Uh, that's a very strong node. It doesn't make up for the blocks of, uh, you know, empty stores on along Madison. But I, I think that that that's interesting that a specific node can be relatively strong. And similarly, we're going to see I think strength in the meat meatpacking area uh, with the opening of so many high street stores. And then I just want to speak really quickly to what I, I did spend the long weekend in Miami. And Miami has recovered not international tourism, but a lot of domestic tourism. Um, and the design district, I have never seen it like I saw it this weekend in terms of the activity, the youth of the um, shoppers and the fact that they were shopping and spending. And part of that may be due to the Louis Vuitton uh, men's fashion pop-up, which was through a huge you know, line of people, but also just to kind of the mix of experience and restaurants and stores. And I was just amazed, I, you know, that, that it took time. A lot of people didn't have confidence that the design district would really emerge as this major shopping destination. But its success today, I think, can point to some you know, key trends and, and I think some things that we can look to for the future. 
All of those neighborhoods and areas that you just mentioned are, you know, favorite locations of mine. So I'm very happy to hear that those nodes and pods are starting to bubble. And so you mentioned a word that I want to explore, which was experience. I think that experiential retailers like Camp and Neighborhood Goods and a couple of others, which were really starting to take off and growing in terms of awareness, foot traffic, and sales prior to the pandemic are in an interesting spot now. You know, they all had to close. Most of them have reopened to much smaller groups of of Mm -hmm. shoppers, but seemingly more committed customers. And some have plans to expand. So I think this trend is really important and likely to keep growing. As you said, as as we get closer to people being vaccinated and more comfortable with coming back into brick and mortar, and especially for, you know, millennial and Gen X consumers who we know through all of the research that um, they are apt to spend more time and money in retail spaces that that offer, you know, activations, food workshops, mm-hmm. information. So I'm, I'm curious, what is your thought about these experiential retailers? Yeah, I, I agree that um, kind of experience, experiential retail for the Gen X and younger uh, uh, millennial and younger consumers is, the, is really the future. And I think informed landlords realize that it really is the future um, for, for retail. Um, Traditional, what I call commodity, you know, the type of stores that are found in every mall and, you know, we're also found on Fifth Avenue, whether it's the Gap or Banana Republic or, or Ralph Lauren, um, that's not going to be uh, where young shoppers will ever, ever return to. And, um, you know, the, it's interesting, I went to the American Dream Mall last week, and um, you know that's about seventy percent experience. Whether it's Nickelodeon, the water park, the skiing, and you know what what the leasing people could point to in terms of success was mainly the kiosks outside of those venues, and they kind of make you go by different shopping areas to get into those venues, and then a few um, special brands like. Uh, Primark, which is, um, I'm getting a phone call. Okay. So should I should I just go back? Let me just stop that one. Uh, we didn't we on. didn't hear anything. Okay. Oh yeah. All right. So I'll know in the future. Yeah, we didn't hear. Anything. Um, I'll just go back to when I said I went to the American Dream Mall. I went to the American Dream Mall last week, uh, which is about seventy percent experience. Everything from Nickelodeon to skiing, to water park. And what the retail leasing people there can point to in terms of success is really um, the kiosks outside of the experience. Or Interesting. A few, yeah, a few stores like Primark, which is you know the kind of fast casual at the lowest possible pr- price point. And uh, that, that is kind of, I think, outside of... Um, uh, experience, whether it's uh, capsule collections or product launches or, you know, creating a, a feeling of scarcity. Um, you know, let me, I can just talk to Louis, what Louis Vuitton did in Miami. I mean, it wasn't the most technologically uh, sophisticated experience, but it was shipping containers, new men's collection, 
terrific video, terrific uh, kind of street art inspired installation, and then tons of opportunities to Instagram, Snapchat, Snapchat, um, and kind of live the Louis Vuitton experience in a very open, open air environment. And uh, that's, I, I think that smart landlords um, realize that catering to that type of experience, whether it's short term or long term, um, is really the future uh, for retail to be successful. And that Louis Vuitton store is a pop-up? The Yes, it was a, a large outdoor pop-up uh, of about, um, I'd say, 10,000 square feet with the shipping containers containing the men's collection, which were, and, and then some containers being changing rooms. So you could try on, you could purchase, you could just take a look at the clothes or photograph yourself with the clothes. Um, and, uh, you know, no refreshments and over the weekend, I'd say, you know, lines of 50 to hundred people hmm. to get Great. it. I think pop-ups, you know, with the right quality brands in great spaces like that is part of the solution, you know, for landlords mm-hmm. right now. And especially those who can rotate, rotate them in every few months and command more of a premium price potentially. So I'm curious, what is the business model for these kinds of leases now that seem to work best? Are landlords more empathetic these days and willing to, you know, help forge solutions with their brand clients? What do you think? I think that they're always looking for the long-term tenancy, uh, but in this environment of super high vacancy, they're willing to kind of try anything, particularly if it is a known brand. They, I don't think most owners are looking for rotation. You know, it's one thing if it's a show fields or if it's a, um, you know, a pop-up uh, like flagship that manages a space and then has a lease and has multiple tenants or subtenants doing pop-ups. Most landlords want the long-term deal, uh, but they're open like they've never been before to short-term. And the type of short-term deals we do um, always give the tenant kind of a right of first offer if any long-term tenant comes forward during the pop-up term to go long. And that's what, you know, for successful brands and successful pop-ups, the owners hope they will do. And is that what is happening with the Toyota pop-up under the Highline in Manhattan right now that you are involved in? So uh, what I, I was approached by um, Cezarnowski, who would, among other things, uh, develop and manage all of the auto show display for Toyota and, and Lexus. And with there being no auto shows, they proposed to Toyota doing pop-ups in four cities for the full Toyota lineup and for a new kind of aspirational Lexus model uh, to tie in at the time of the holidays with the Toyota-thons around the country. So we did uh, five-month pop-ups in New York, Chicago, Miami, and Newport Beach. And uh, in each case, you know, we had, oh, as I said earlier, owners who were more than happy to uh, entertain a short-term 
uh, transaction with the hope that, or possibility that uh, Toyota could go long term. Um, as for now, they are not going long term. I think there's uncertainty about uh, where, where and when car shows will return. And there's always concern that they don't want to drive away traffic from dealerships. So I think this was a successful entree into these markets, particularly as the locations were in, um, you know, prime shopping districts, not where you typically find car showrooms. Um, and it, it kind of follows what Tesla has done and mm-hmm. Polestar has done more recently, um, you know, a little bit more long-term in terms of experiential, not, not dealerships, but experiential uh, showrooms to create awareness, build excitement for uh, the car models. What's happening inside those pop-ups? Um, it's not as, uh, it kind of depends on the brand. Um, the Lexus was, you know, obviously an opportunity to get inside the car. There was some high-tech interactive display, not so much technology in, or interactivity in Toyota, not like what you would find in, in Polestar, for example, which is a collaboration between Volvo and a Chinese car manufacturer doing an all-electric and hybrid cars. But um, there was a great graphics, very much tied in with the holidays. And, you know, in, in New York, we were located in uh, just under the High Line at 14th Street and about 10,000 square feet, tons of visibility. Um, similarly, in Miami Beach, it was on Lincoln Road for both Toyota and Lexus within a couple of blocks of each other. So they were in very visible, you know, generally high traffic locations. Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's, again, to drive interest in the models and to drive traffic to the dealerships or to potentially online purchases as well. I've driven past that uh, location in Manhattan and really want to go in and check it out. Um, I'm curious, do any of these deals include a percentage of sales, of actual retail sales? Not typically uh, on a pop-up basis, um, but in terms of longer-term deals, particularly restaurant retail, um, as long as there are impacts of COVID in terms of occupancy, capacity, um, there's a lot of openness among landlords to do percentage deals or to do phased-in rent deals. Um, or a combination of low base rent and some percentage rent. Um, and I think that that flexibility is going to continue, you know, for the time being. Good. Is there any advice that you would give brands around, you know, how to go about that part of the negotiation? I think it's really to establish your bottom line, what your budget is for occupancy, and to just work with that number if I help, you know, brands convey the appeal and the potential of what they're trying to do in these stores. And again, in this environment, I've found owners very open to doing very aggressive deals, uh, not necessarily committing long-term if Mm -hmm. the tenant decides to go long-term to a similar deal, but to be very aggressive, at least uh, on the short-term pop-up term and to really meet what the tenant's needs are. 
And uh, it's, it's a great, as again, a great time to be opportunistic um, and not to be afraid of prime retail environments and neighborhoods uh, that might have been off limits, you know, in the past. Right. That opens up a lot of creative opportunities, you know, mm-hmm. to how you, how you think about your objectives in the space and, and what you can do there. It's really a tremendous opportunity, as you said. Um, you know, you mentioned that some of these activations haven't used a lot of technology, that they're relying a little bit more on, you know, graphics and general look and feel. But obviously, e-commerce has been the big winner, you know, in retail during this period of the pandemic. And interestingly, across many new platforms, you know, beyond the regular brand URLs, websites, like all the social media sites that have embedded, you know, shopping in real time uh, capabilities, Mm -hmm. TikTok and Twitch and now Instagram has real-time shopping available. I thought it was interesting that Nordstrom became the first uh, store to report that e-commerce accounted for the majority of its earnings mm-hmm. in the last mm-hmm. few quarters. I mean, that that's so interesting. And Amazing. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. wondering, you know, if you think that will continue um, and if there are other tech innovations that you've seen in the last year or so that is kind of help filling the gap, as you said, the relationship between the online and the offline world, which I think is the way forward. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's the way forward. I think, you know, the days, and this, I'm sure this happened to you, it happened to me, where you'd walk into a store and what you were looking for a specific shoe, a specific bag, and they would just say, you have to go out and look online. We don't have any. Those days are over. That was so frustrating. <laughs> yeah, so frustrating. So the the brands have to look at online and bricks and mortar as kind of the omni-channel. And they have to have salespeople who are so tuned in, who, you know, not only know if it's a high street, uh, you know, LVMH or caring type brand, where a specific size and product can be found in what cities, but they can just facilitate the purchase and the delivery, uh, you know, instantly. So people feel that they're getting value out of the experience of being in the store and they're not being told, well, we have a few things here and we have a few sizes, but really probably the best choice for you is to go online. That, that, the, the kind of omni-channel and, and, and so much um, flexibility and power in the hands of salespeople to really push a sale that that capitalizes on how a technology can build a very broad platform between street locations, mall locations, online, warehouse, distribution. It's really bringing that all together. And if uh, experiential stores are largely showrooms, where just you find your size or technology helps you size and you look and you choose, it has to be fully integrated into fulfillment and into, um, you know, I think a a store salesperson controlling the process and not just sending people elsewhere. I mean, the, the relationship that salespeople can develop um, in person is is completely different from the uh, connection that people have with online selling. And I think that's really 
part of what technology has to facilitate to particularly help stores survive and thrive, you know, you know, in the future. That speaks to, you know, the implementation of physical technology like QR codes and, mm-hmm. you know, offering virtual store tours, which I think is super important to continue to do that as we go forward so that people who aren't able to come in real life, you know, will still enjoy the physical experience in that way. And it speaks a lot to how a brand thinks about its sales force. You know, who are they going to hire for those positions and how are they going to train them? I'm a big proponent of using, you know, new kinds of research to gather information and data about the effectiveness of, of salespeople in real life environments and then using, you know, turning that around into solid training that makes a difference. Absolutely. That's, you know, clearly is going to be key to success and to empowering salespeople to be really the ambassadors of the brand, uh, not just people who, you know, show someone different sizes of, a, of an article of clothes. So I guess the big question is, you know, how do you replace those huge spaces that the Gaps and Barneys and other large retailers, you know, which has occupied so much of these urban environments? I mean, that's that's a big, a big issue. Um, I think, you know, the era of the department store is is going to be over. I think dividing stores, creating marketplaces that give each brand a home. There are marketplaces for dining. There are going to be marketplaces for shoes. Uh, I think the museum and entertainment uh, sector, you know, you have museums of everything, museum of shoes, museum of jewelry, museum of ice cream, um, which are all experiential, that those can start to take some of the larger stores uh, spaces. And then, you know, you know, kind of experiential entertainment slash culture. You know, you have the uh, Van Gogh experience, which is multiple companies trying to establish these in key cities, you know, in large, uh, high ceiling, potentially former department stores or large stores. Um, and then, you know, you're still going to have, I think, the fast casual that are very much tuned into um, new fashion, new changes, you know, and that's, you know, at one end and you have the Rosses and the Targets, you know, at the other end that are still, you know, quite successful and expanding. And so it's kind of a a mix. I don't think there's one solution that fits all, um, but, you know, department stores, I think, are in the worst, you know, position um, and you see, in some cases, complete reuse and redevelopment for non-retail uses. And that will happen, obviously, in some shopping centers, uh, in particular around the country. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see companies like Target and other more mass retailers mm-hmm. offering pop-up space to emerging designers mm-hmm. and brands. So that shop within a shop activation. Yeah, that, make, that creates a lot of excitement. And particularly for the younger consumers who want to see new, everything is about what's the newest, what's the latest. And we don't want to just see the same stuff each time we go shopping. 
So any other predictions about the future of retail? You've seen a lot happen in this space over the last 20 years. Well, um, I, I can just speak to some of the things that I'm, I'm working on <laughs> to the extent that they're new and different. Um, uh, obviously, a lot of focus on wellness um, and health um, that's coming out of this. Um, I just did a um, pop-up which hopefully will go long-term in downtown Brooklyn for the New York Blood, Blood Center. They, um, there's no corporate or um, church blood drives you know, anymore. And I don't think they're going to return so fast. Yeah. So most of the blood centers existing were, are in business districts. So now the place to go are neighborhoods where people live. And that's what we did on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. We expect to do that downtown, whether it's Greenwich Village or Chelsea, uh, or neighborhoods where people live. So that, you know, is, is one kind of trend. And then I'm doing a pop-up urgent care COVID testing and vaccine. I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and again, I kind of started the call talking about, um, you know, a certain amount of, of, fear about the future. And if there's any one sector where, you know, I wouldn't think people would be afraid that demand is not going to be strong, it would be COVID vaccine and testing and just health, you know, walk-in healthcare in general. Um, I think that that's going to be, you know, a great sector for the future. But even in that sector, the operators, as they expand to meet the demand and, and their ability to, to offer vaccine and testing, they only want to go short term. Mm-hmm. So even there, they are looking for maybe a year, maybe 18 months. They might want to go long term, but even in that category, you know, short term. Um, and again, this is the time to get the best possible deal long term. Uh, and even in those categories, there's a certain amount of uncertainty and fear uh, about the future. And, uh, you know, my prediction is that, you know, the focus on wellness, the focus on air filtration, air quality, taking people's temperatures. You know, if I know that I'm going into a store after this is all over and there's no one with a raging fever walking around, uh, I I think that might be something that people may want to, some stores and some people may want to retain. I don't know. But, uh I'm, I know that, you know, in the future, even when this is over, I'm going to continue to wear a mask on airplanes and probably in airports. So, yeah, there will know. definitely be practices that have been, you know, installed or shifted that I think will remain for sure. Um, but what you're what you're touching on is difference between high demand, you know, for a service mm-hmm. versus discovery. And in the wellness area, I has, have been watching and finding so interesting pop-ups that allow people to discover new wellness practices and techniques Mm -hmm. and then decide for themselves if this is something they want to adopt, like the energy shots that you could pop in, you know, to an office um, after you've been traveling, get a vitamin B shot or the Mm -hmm. salt caves that, you know, all of a sudden there's one in Montauk and one in lower Manhattan, uh, Mm -hmm. meditation pods. And I, I think some of that will start to come back. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, people's focus on personal care, on, on health, and as you said, on kind of trying 
do things. That is definitely a driver of pop-up activity and hopefully, you know, also in terms of what is successful, whether it's offering a range of, of services um, that I think will be one positive area for growth as we come out of this in the future. But I, 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 de- I definitely think, yeah, wellness is not going away. And um, the kind of precautions that are in place, I think a certain amount of them are going to kind of stay in place for a while. I want to move into a different area of your practice to talk about for a few minutes, and that is the workplace space. You know, it's super interesting to think about that in terms of where that industry was pre-pandemic and where it is now. And I wonder if the perks of a cool office life with snacks and game rooms will hold up against the flexibility of working from home once these buildings start to reopen. What do you think? Um, my thinking is that to inspire people to return, at least to return more on a full-time schedule, um, there's going to have to continue to be a lot of amenities and an expansion of amenities, expansion of outdoor space where possible, expansion of uh, wellness areas, gym, you know, yoga classes, meditation rooms. I think that that um, there has to be more of a driver to generate um, this return, and and you see it, you know, even though the tech companies have also been slow to mandate or suggest return to work, they've already kind of done this with their campuses, whether it's Apple or Facebook or Google, with lots of amenities, lots of services in the office place, and that's um, going to be vital to bringing people back. One trend I'm concerned about is, you know, the fact that many companies have for now almost a year of very underutilized office space, which they're paying for, and in some cases trying to renegotiate. They're unfortunately, I think, kind of disinvesting in some ways out of the space, you know, in terms of staffing, in terms of supplies, in terms of technology. And this isn't the, not, I'm not talking about the Googles and the Apples, but more of the kind of service businesses where, you know, as was a trend before COVID, so many people who are providing business services, accounting services, real estate, marketing, there wasn't really a need for them to be in the office five days a week. Maybe they had a certain number of meetings, maybe they met new clients, but Unless we're going to rethink how those uh, companies operate in the workplace, I don't think you should just, you know, kind of disinvest. Uh, you got to think about a plan. Whether you're going to reduce your occupancy, encourage, um, you know, people to treat the office as a place for certain activities that they would be better off served doing in the office as opposed to doing virtually, whether it's face-to-face meetings, um, training and development. There has to be a rethinking uh, of, of the way the office is used. And um, yeah, we're in for a lot of turmoil um, as it's clear companies will, in many sectors, be pulling back their levels of occupancies. They're already putting many floors of space on the market for sublease. I'm you know, working with clients trying to take advantage of that opportunity. Um, 
but uh, it's again also a very uncertain time, uh, and it's unclear. It seems that in in certain cities um, where people don't take public transportation, they drive. There's parking. The office buildings are lower density. The return rates are pretty high. I think in Miami it's about 47 percent. In Dallas about 40 percent. But in New York it's barely 15 percent. In fact, it dropped. You know, after the holidays in January in New York, in San Francisco, in Washington D.C., very very uh, tough times for uh, you know the office environment, and you know it has reverberations, as I mentioned at the beginning of the call, in terms of um, the loss of business activity and consumers for retail in business sector, in business neighborhoods. And uh, that's really a huge challenge for New York and San Francisco, you know, for example, uh, in their, you know, office centers. And it will take a long time for uh, the, the recovery to really um, you know, flourish in those neighborhoods. Two thoughts, pop-ups in the workplace, you know, let's mm-hmm. bring those in and use some of that space uh, creatively. And also, I think it speaks to mixed use spaces. When mm-hmm. I think about, you know, how I advise brands and mentor emerging designers um, who are thinking about how to set up their businesses and how to grow them, it feels like now is a good time to find spaces that can serve both as their office and maybe a showroom, mm-hmm. you know, a, a production studio for, you know, photography to facilitate, you know, press and PR. Is that, is that difficult to do or, or do you think that makes sense? It, well, it traditionally was difficult because the cost, the occupancy cost for retail space was you know, typically a multiple of what it could be for office or showroom. The lower cost of retail space, you know, presents an opportunity for what we discussed before, which is, you know, kind of an omni-channel approach to retailing. And that can include the support and the showroom, you know, uh, uh, functions as well. And the lower cost of retail space can help accommodate companies that may see um, real benefits from having all of their people together as opposed to being spread between stores, showrooms, and offices. Yeah, I think that's an exciting idea. And it brings a lot of buzziness and creativity into those spaces. And they're also just nice places to be in. You know, there's a lot going on. I think that, you know, one area of the business gets inspiration from the other. So I I like being in that kind of environment a lot. Definitely, definitely. So any final thoughts or final words that you'd like our audience to think about in terms of commercial real estate, the future of that, how to think about returning to to brick and mortar shopping? Well, one thing, and it kind of ties into just what you said, I think the future is a lot about bespoke and about customization. And that's something, for example, that having your production or your showroom production and display uh, uh, integrated with retail, that will drive interest in brands. You know, if you have the ability to be making samples, to be making uh, 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 different color, fabric, um, different choices available, and actually integrating a certain amount of the production into the retail space, that creates an experience. And I think that 
kind of bespoke nature is another critical element to driving, you know, enthusiasm for a pop-up and long-term retail in the future as well. I want to go to that pop-up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. no, that's, that's cool. That's very cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us. I really learned a lot and um, it's given me a lot to think about. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thanks for listening to the Pop-Up Biz Podcast, where something new is always popping. For guest ideas or to innovate your next pop-up, email me at susan at popupsummer.com. Also, head over to our social media channels on Facebook and Instagram at popupsummer. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple. It's easy. Head over to your Apple Podcast app, scroll through the episodes, click on five stars, and leave a review. 